Well, church, I'm excited to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 this morning. Genesis 18, as we continue our study here this uh, winter and now into spring, it feels like, here of the life of Abraham. And so Genesis 18, you'll find that on page 12 in the Pew Bible if you want to follow along. I do encourage you, as I often do, to have God's Word open during this time. I think it will help you as we consider this, I think, a wonderful passage which I trust God will speak through. So Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran. From the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought out and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Our Father, we're thankful for this word. We ask even now that you would help us to understand all that you want to teach us through it. That this would be our opportunity as Abraham ate with you long ago in fellowship. That we would indeed experience something of that today. A spiritual fellowship with our Lord as we come and submit ourselves to him and sit under his word. So we pray that you would come and speak to us. You might draw us closer to you. You might strengthen our faith. You might help us find increasing delight in you and in your name. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the year was 1882, and Dwight Moody, the great American preacher, had planned a week of meetings to evangelize the students of Cambridge University in England. On Sunday night, the first uh, meeting of the week, November 5th at 8 in the evening, the rented hall was filled with 1,700 students. The choir began, 
somewhat courageously as they sang. I say courageously because while they sang, they were actually mocked by the students who began to sing back their song to him, almost as if an, an echo. Other students at the time the choir was singing were constructing a pyramid of chairs. Other students were lighting firecrackers in the rented hall. Then the door opened and in came Moody, his song leader, Ira Sankey, and several Christian faculty. The professor of botany offered an opening prayer while some students yelled at him while he prayed. Next, Ira Sankey sang a hymn, which the students listened to at first, but then they began to beat the floor with their canes and their umbrellas while he sang, and they shouted at him, bringing Sankey to tears even while he sang. Well, then it was time for Moody to preach. He approached the the pulpit, having already decided to preach on the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But Moody's uh, monosyllabic pronunciation of Daniel, which he pronounced Daniel, right, was just too much for the students. And every time he said Daniel, they all shouted back to him, Daniel, Daniel, and erupt in laughter. In fact, uh, whenever Moody would use any non-British pronunciation, they just thought that was hysterical and they laughed at him. This all was led by a handsome young student in the front row named Gerald Lander. And in fact, when Moody was preaching, he was staring at him in the eye, trying to get him to, to dial it down, but he would not. And as the students left, Lander stood on his chair and shouted, If uneducated men will come to teach the varsity... They deserve to be snubbed. Well, the following morning, there was a knock on Moody's hotel door. It was none other than Gerald Lander, whom Moody recognized immediately, of course. The student simply said to him humbly, I I want to apologize, sir, and I brought a letter of apology from the men. Moody invited him in, and after speaking with Lander for some time, he, he got Lander to agree to come to the meeting that evening as, as proof of the sincerity of his apology. Right, if you really mean this, then you'll come again tonight. And so Lander reluctantly did, which what would begin a journey for this young scoffer who would end up spending his life in China as a Christian missionary. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No. And as we'll see, God will, even in this passage, in the coming passages, do wonderful things. God will keep his covenant. This covenant that he's made with Abraham, as we've seen over the last weeks, this great plan of redemption, that a people from all nations will come and love him and come and trust him, and that it will all come through Abraham. As God said to him last week, that Abraham, you'll be a father of a multitude of nations, looking forward to the church that would come through the descendant of Abraham, that the nations will be blessed by becoming, God says, Abraham's descendants through faith. You're a father of nations. That's Abraham's covenant with him. And so it's helpful for us to understand when we study this that the Abrahamic covenant is not what the New Testament refers to as the old covenant. That's the covenant at at Sinai. 
In fact, the Abrahamic covenant is really the new covenant in a seed form, in just a, a kernel form that is fleshed out and ultimately fulfilled through Jesus. That, that he would bless the world through Abraham's offspring, ultimately found in Jesus. And so um, these are the promises in which God has given to him. In fact, he's given these promises to Abraham now four different times. There have been four conversations between the two of them. In chapter 12, if you will remember, God says, go uh, to this place, I'm going to bless you, and not just bless you, I'm going to bless the world through you. In chapter 13, he appears the second time to Abraham. He says, go, look around, take a hike. Everything you see, I'm going to give to you. In chapter 15, remember, he shows up and he says to Abraham, you're going to have a son, and, but I want to be clear, the son is going to come from your own body. It's not going to be an adopted child of this man named Eleazar. And then in chapter 17, he comes a fourth time, we saw last week, that he comes to clarify even more. He says, by the way, not just from your own body, but from Sarah's body too. And your descendants will be kings and nations. And there he's finally given the sign of the covenant as we considered circumcision last time. So each time God shows up, he's providing more information about this covenant. There are more details, uh, fleshing it out. So, um, and, and now he comes, of course, here, in the, as we've seen already, in chapter 18, now for the fifth time. Now, what's interesting about this fifth appearance of God to Abraham is that there is no new information. Right? He doesn't come and offer some new details. Uh, there, there, there's nothing, just reiterates what he's already said. So the question that many have asked is, why does he show up at all here in chapter 18? Why does he come if he's not going to offer more of the promises of the covenant? Well, my friends, he's coming for Sarah. That's why he comes. He loves Sarah. And he wants to help Sarah trust in him. He wants to, if you will, give Sarah strength to believe. Which I think is really the thrust of this passage. Why I entitled my sermon that way. This is a passage of God coming to undergird struggling faith. In fact, God comes down from heaven, doesn't he, to have lunch with them, to reassure Sarah about the promises in which he has made. In fact, up to this point, every time God has shown up, he's talked to Abraham. It seems as if Sarah's nowhere around. Sarah's not involved. And now God wants us, I want you to hear from, my, from me and myself, not through your husband. You are going to have a son. And so as the sun is, is, is high in the sky and Abraham is seeking an afternoon rest in the heat of the day by the shade of his tent, he is visited by the Lord. And we see it as a, if you will, point number one, a friendly visit. A very friendly visit indeed, for we see in verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. We'll learn in just another verse that the Lord is one of three men. We'll find out in chapter 19, the other two men seem to be angels. And, and in fact, you see that there in verse 2. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. Um, maybe he's nodding off in the afternoon heat. He clearly did not hear their approach. This is a big camp, by the way. There's hundreds of people living with Abraham. And somehow these three men have made it all the way into to Abraham's tent. And they're standing right in front of him, almost as if they suddenly appear looking at him. And Abraham sees them, rises quickly, runs to greet them, and bows to them like a good host to his guest. He even offers them an invitation for a meal. As you see in verse 2, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Right? 
Now, some have suggested that Abraham is aware that these must be heavenly visitors. Um, I'm not so sure. I think he will become aware. But I think initially he doesn't know. In fact, I think there's a little verse in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 2. I'm sure you have heard of it. I think it's a commentary on this passage. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by it some have entertained angels without knowing it. I don't think he knew. I think he's just simply being a good host. In fact, to the the Bedouin um, uh, culture, which Abraham was part of, hospitality was almost one of the chief virtues. And so here he is. He's eager to serve them. It's almost as if they're doing him a favor by staying, letting him serve them. 1 Peter 4, by the way, carries this into the New Testament and tells us to show hospitality without grumbling. There's no grumbling here, clearly. He's delighted to have them. And he says, I think unknowingly to God, just as we have done this morning, haven't we, in song, do not pass me by. He offers them, as they come, water, rest, food. You see this in verse 4 and onward. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself. And after that, you may pass on since since you have come to your servant. So they said... Do as you have said. I just want you to note the wonderful graciousness that Abraham is experiencing here. He invites them over. He wants to take care of all their needs. In fact, guys, if you invite someone over for a meal and they say yes, what's the first thing you do? I mean, what do you do immediately? Well, you go find your wife, right? Isn't that right? This is like what Abraham does. You see that in verse 6. They say yes, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, said, quick, three seas of flour, knead it, and make the cakes, make three cakes, right? Um, uh, uh, so let, get to work, right? Come on, Sarah. I've invited them over for dinner, and they said yes, and I don't think they want PB&J. So let's get going, right? We need to get something here cooked. And while she's off kneading the bread, he runs out to go kill the cow in verse 7. And Abraham ran to the herd and took the calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly, Right? I mean, the whole place is thrown into a frenzy, isn't it? He's running everywhere. He sees them. He runs to them, and he runs back to the tent. He's running out to the the stall, and he's doing it quickly, and Sarah's quickly. I mean, they're just, the the whole place is in chaos as they get ready for these unexpected guests. She's kneading bread. Abraham's grilling steaks or something, right? I mean, this is a pretty pretty nice meal, isn't it? It's not hot dogs and paper plates. And this is, you know, prime rib, maybe a little horseradish on the side, I hope. Fresh bread. You get some milk in there. I mean, putting this on China. I mean, they're they're doing it all for them. In fact, in Proverbs 23, it says, Do not eat with people who are stingy. Don't desire their delicacies. They are always thinking about how much it costs. Eat and drink, they say, but they do not mean it. Well, that's not Abraham. That's not Sarah. I mean, this wonderfully generous heart. And what does that communicate to his guests? Well, you're important, doesn't it? It means we value you. And so there they are are eating there in verse 8, aren't they? Then he took the curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And so they're eating. And Abraham's standing nearby under a tree, almost like with like a napkin over his arm, right? And, you know, ready to fill their cups whenever they're, they get low. I think that's a little weird, by the way. If you come to my house for dinner and we have steaks, I'm eating with you, okay? 
Um, John got to be right in there with you. But I do just think this is a picture of wonderful hospitality. I think it's a great example of how we should be. In fact, there are many biblical commands on hospitality. There's a whole book on hospitality, whole book in the Bible on hospitality. It's 3 John, right? It says, we ought therefore to show hospitality so that we may work together for the truth. We see this in Romans 12, I believe it is. This is particularly true among elders. If you're an elder, a pastor, you are to be hospitable. That is a requirement for elders. Of course, it's true for all Christians, I think. We should open our homes for others, in particular to those who we don't know very well. So fellowship is, is, is spending time, is eating, bringing Christians into your home. Hospitality is bringing the stranger into your home, the non-Christian into your home. We're to invite people that we don't know very well over, just as God invited us over, if you will, while we were strangers. And we show them how God treats us by how we treat them. Right? That's why they're having steak and not cereal, right? I want to show you how lavish God has been to me, how good God has been to me. This is, I think, what the Bible tells us repeatedly we ought to do. So my question for you, Christians, when's the last time you've had a neighbor over for dinner? When's the last time you invited someone down the street? You want to come over? You have dinner together, grill out. I, I was thinking about my own childhood and my life, and I... I I, was, I look back, and I don't think there, I can't ever remember, not a single event, of non-family coming over for dinner. And, and certainly, I guarantee you, we never once had a neighbor over for dinner. The Bible says we should love our neighbors. God has put you in that house, in that neighborhood for a reason. Right? We should love them. Often we don't even know their names. In fact, America is becoming an increasingly inhospitable place, isn't it? In the last 30 years, having a friend over for dinner, a friend, mind you, is down 50%. Family dinners, this is no surprise to you, are down 33%. We're just too busy, aren't we? We've got too many things to do. We're on the go, right? And by the way, how long did this meal take? Butcher the calf, bake the bread, right? This is hours, this is, he's not calling Domino's, right? They're not running out McDonald's. They're, they're, they're lingering there. We are, I, I think we are in far too big a rush. Put me in the head of that line, by the way, right? And what, what this communicates, I think, is that we have things to do, and therefore we put relationships second compared to opportunities. We put relationships second compared to activities, We'd rather, as Americans, accomplish things. We'd rather, as Americans, have experiences than we would get to know people. And I think you even see this. You look at the new homes that are being built. And the focus is not on the dining room, right? It's on the entertainment rooms. We have home theaters now. I'm not saying that's bad. But it seems to me that that communicates, if you don't check your heart, that we'd rather be entertained than talk to people. Or the focus is on our closets. Right? Some of your closets are as big as rooms. Why? Because many times we'd rather accumulate things than talk to people. Or we have home offices. Because we'd rather accomplish things than talk to people. And I, I think, as Christians, we ought to be concerned about meeting people. About building friendships. About pointing them to Jesus. 
And so if I can just give very simple application for you. I think every one of you should invite a neighbor over for dinner this month. They may say no. They may be delighted. But you take that step of faith. Say, hey, would you like to come over to dinner just to get to know them, just to love on them, just to practice hospitality? There's a wonderful new book I've heard. I almost never recommend books to you I have not read, but I have not read this one. Um, but I have heard so many people testify to how profoundly uh, powerful it has been in their life. And it's by Rosaria Butterfield, who I have read her works. And I think the book is entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I would really recommend for maybe your community group could read that and get together and think, how can we grow in this area of hospitality as Christians? Because if Abraham hadn't been hospitable, things would have gone much different, right? I mean, this, this, we're going to have this wonderful event. And he goes, walks up to him, and unbeknowingly to him, says, hey, Jesus, you want to come to my house for lunch? And Jesus says, what? Yes, I would like that very much. Why? Because Jesus wants to be his friend. His friend. I don't know if you realize this, but three times in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God, God's friend. My favorite place is Isaiah 41, when it's God himself who explains, you, O Israel, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. My friend. And God, I think, would be your friend too. Right? Did did not our Lord Jesus say, greater love has no one than this, that that one lay down his life for whom? For his friends. I no longer call you servant because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. And does not, by the way, our friendship with Jesus far exceed that of Abraham's with the Lord. I mean, Abraham had a company for the afternoon. Jesus said to us, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Abraham received some information about God. Jesus said, I've made known to you all that I've learned from the Father. Abraham was comforted with a promised son. Jesus comforts us with the truth that no greater love has one than this. That he dies for us as Jesus would. Are you his friend? Are you Jesus' friend? He himself said, you are my friends if you do what I command. This is, by the way, the only time in the Old Testament where God shares a meal with someone. There are other times when God visits, but the, and a meal's prepared, but he, before he, instead of eating it, he vaporizes it, right? He turns it into a sacrifice, and, and the, the aroma ascends to heaven. And here, here he eats. And the New Testament is, is different, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is constantly eating. He's constantly breaking bread with friends and enemies alike. He's, he's, in fact, at times he's hosting meals. After the resurrection of Jesus, we don't have a lot of scripture that tells us what he did for those 40 days. But we do know with the little scripture we have, he had, a, he had four different meals with them. He's constantly eating with them. In fact, the most famous meal that Jesus has had, of course, is a meal we call the Last Supper. And he began that meal by saying, I eagerly desire to eat this meal with you. I really, really want to have this time together. I want to break this bread with you. And I think he still does because we take now, don't we, a meal which we call the Lord's Supper, which we'll take next week, God willing, which is just simply a reenactment of the Last Supper. It's a covenantal meal of fellowship. We call it communion because we are communing with one another as we commune with the Lord. Next week, we won't have steak and milk, by the way. We'll have bread and the fruit of the vine. 
as we remember how it is that we have entered into this covenant, how it is that we've entered into this friendship with God. In fact, I don't know if you notice here this meal that Abraham prepares. There, I think it's verse 4, isn't it? He brought, uh, let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Right? In other words, as gracious as Abraham was, he wasn't going to do that job. So here's some water. You could wash your feet before lunch. And yet when Jesus spoke of his death at the Last Supper, he humbled himself, not just washing his own feet, but washing the feet of others. Why? Because he wants to show us, show them, that they can't clean themselves. That his death will wash them and us from our sin. That's what he's saying. And he says it today. I invite anyone in this room today on the authority of the very word of God. If you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, he will forgive you of everything you have ever done and everything you ever will done. He will cover you with his love. He will invite you into a relationship with him. And if you will, he will even eat with you. Is that not what he says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20? I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And what? And I will eat with him and he with me. Do you know him like this? Do you experience what he's talking about? Do you break bread with Jesus, if you will? Can you relate to him in this way? One of my favorite theologians, John Stott, um, he, his whole life he went to church. Um, and it was one day when he was 17 years old, he heard his pastor preach on Revelation 3.20, that verse I just quoted. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I'll come in and eat with them. This is what he writes. It was exactly what I needed to know. For I had believed in Jesus all my life. I had been around Jesus all my life. But I realized he was on the outside, on the wrong side of the door. I said my prayers every day, but through the keyhole, as it were, hoping to be heard. But that night, 13th of February, 1938, when the others were in bed and the lights were out, I crept out of bed and knelt, and as simply as I knew how, I opened the door. Have you opened the door? You may know all about Jesus. You may say your prayers every day. Have you invited them into your life? Have you, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? There is no one, no one, he is unwilling to befriend. There is no home or heart he is unwilling to enter. You could do that today. You could feast with him today. In this spiritual fellowship which is, of course, only a preview of the physical feast we'll have one day when all things are created. I think it was a number of weeks ago it was read from this pulpit, Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts will make a people for all, make a, uh, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine and food full of marrow. One day we will sit at table with Jesus and we shall eat with him. Well, we see this meal here was not just for Abraham and his guests, uh, but it was for Sarah. As I've already mentioned, she was inside, ear pressed to the fabric of the tent as we see this wonderful announcement. 
And we'll be brief here. A wonderful announcement found in verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So God says to Abraham, thanks for lunch. In fact, I, I enjoy myself so much, I'm going to come back next year. And when I do, I'm looking, I want to hold your baby. Well, Sarah's going to have a baby boy. I'm going to come back next year, and uh, I can't wait to see him. All right? so he says to the 99-year-old man. Now, I call this a wonderful announcement. I think it's wonderful for two reasons. One, I think it's probably at this point that Abraham, it finally dawns on Abraham that this is not just a neighbor, but this is God himself. Now, I'm speculating here, but I, I think it's probably safe to assume Abraham has not told many people about the promise of this son, right? Because it's absurd. You don't go around in your 90s, okay, saying to others, I'm going to have a son. And they say, really? And you say, well, not yet, but someday, right? Someday I'm going to have a son. I can't wait. You probably keep that close to the chest. You say, I believe you, Lord, but I don't think I'll be telling many people about that. Okay? Well, and, and, and here this man says to the 99-year-old Abraham, next year, Sarah's going to have his son, a son. And I, I think his heart must have started racing. I think his knees grew weak because the only one who knows about this promise is the one who actually gave it to him. And now he's sitting at his table having a meal with him. I think it's wonderful for a second reason, because as we've established already, that God has appeared many times, but he's always spoken to Abraham. It seems like Sarah's nowhere nearby, and now as he comes, and he says, where's Sarah? I need to talk to Sarah. Well, he says, she's, she's in the tent right behind you. Well, God knows she's listening. He wants her to hear. And after years and years and years of hearing it from Abraham, she needs to hear it from me. A son is coming, and that son is coming soon. And the reason she needs to hear this is because she is struggling to believe. And I really think this is, though there's great principles on hospitality uh, gleaned from this passage, this is the point of this whole passage, that God wants to strengthen this woman's faith as he provides for her, thirdly, a patient encouragement. A patient encouragement. So Sarah hears all this promise. And you see how, she, how uh, the response to them, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So in fact, you really have two problems. Sarah's been infertile her whole life. And now she's really old. Right? So post-menopausal barren women... Don't have babies, right? And so the problem, the promise that she just heard that you're going to have a son next year is absurd. It's crazy. And it's maybe a little hurtful, right? And so she laughs at the idea, as you see in verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and the Lord, my, my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? Right? In fact, you understand there are two kinds of laughter, don't you? There's a laughter of joy. There's a, la- a wonder, worship, hope. 
right? And there's the laughter of hopelessness. There's a, there's a bitter laughter. There's the laughter of resolve. Abraham, you remember, laughed in chapter 17. Well, that was a laughter of overwhelming joy at this promise. Sarah here is laughing in chapter 18, and sadly, it's the laughter of a cynic, right? She says, I'm a worn out old woman, and I'm married to an even older man, and we're gonna have a baby? Yeah, right, give me a break. That's a real funny one, right? And she, she laughs in derision. She laughs at Jesus. Okay? So point of application, don't laugh at Jesus. Okay? <laughs> don't mock God. Right? And there she is, because your heart's full of disbelief. M- many of you have been walking with us through, uh, through our journey in foster care, and, and you've experienced the highs and the lows with us. And, uh, we, uh, a number of weeks ago, were, we were in a low place, and, and the kids were trying to share with the kids and walk with them, and some of our kids were kind of distraught at the possibilities of what the future held. And I shared this story with, um, with my uh, uh, 10-year-old daughter. I don't know if she's 10, somewhere around there, 9? So. Maggie, how old are you? She doesn't know either. All right, okay, okay. Um, they, it keeps changing, right? <laughs> Let, let, let me share it with you. This is by author uh, Mark Little. He says, as a child, I loved to curl up in the back of our car as we drove through the night. I felt so safe, cocked back there with Dad in the driver's seat. But sometimes my grandma would go with us. And she would sit on the edge of her seat, barking instructions about every car that came our way. Watch the side of the road there. Be careful with that guy next to us. Don't go so fast. I don't think she ever enjoyed the ride. Why? Because she didn't trust my father. She couldn't rest in his care. Grandma and I both reached our destination, but one got there frazzled while the other arrived happy and rested. You see, Sarah's the grandma. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, they're going to arrive at the same destination. But Sarah's just kind of along for the ride in this heart of doubt and fear and concern and this lack of trust. In fact, God, God calls her out on it. You see in verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? I, I think you notice just by, by the way, a footnote here, that God talks to whom? about Sarah's sin. He talks to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, just like Eve led Adam into sin and God comes looking for whom? Looking for Adam. He says to Adam, what's going on in your home? Right? Men, please understand, if there is sin in your home, it may not be your sin. It may not be your fault. But it is your responsibility. You are the captain of your ship. You are the head of your home. And if a ship runs aground, the captain may be asleep in his bunk and someone else at the wheel, and it may not be his fault, but it is his responsibility. And so God wants to talk to Abraham about his wife's sin. And I think if there is sin in our home, there'll be a knock on our door, and there'll be God standing there, and he will say, is the man of the home here? I would like to talk to him. And we see God coming to Abraham and saying, what's going on with your wife? 
Okay, Abraham, I know you didn't hear it, but your wife is in the tent mocking me in disbelief. And then God, I think, in great graciousness, brings this encouragement, as we see in verse 14. And here's the heart of this passage. I think you should memorize it. I think it's seven words. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And he reiterates, at the appointed time, I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. You notice God's working on his timing. There's an appointed time. That's what is going to happen. You and I, my friends, we're not going to change God's timing, right? God has a plan. God has things decided. He's going to work things out. He has an appointed time. Therefore, our goal is never to move God to come and meet our appointed time. Our goal is to trust in his, right? We were to wait, as he's teaching Abraham and Sarah almost every chapter, to wait to bring his promises. I mention this because there is some Christian teaching, and I use Christian very loosely, uh, that's on your television, and it's the idea if you have enough faith, you can move God's schedule to meet your schedule. May I suggest to you that true faith is trusting in God's plan and that his schedule is probably better than yours, right? Okay, so you ought to trust him because you and I are foolish. God is all-knowing, wise, and good. And so we ought to just submit in faith and say, God, even though I would like it to be him, I trust you. You have an appointed time, and I'm going to rest in that. So there's an appointed time for this child. And, the, and, of course, it's not the time in which they're expecting. God is waiting until it's humanly impossible for the promised son to be brought about. And he's doing this so that we would learn. We talked about this last time. We'll learn so that we don't contribute to the blessings of the covenant. We simply receive it. The covenant is brought through this child, and this child is brought about by a work of a sovereign, powerful, and gracious God. And God will form a people from all nations, like you and I, who will live for his glory, and he will do it, why? By our scheming, by our planning, by our works of righteousness? No, my friends. He'll do it simply by his grace and by his power, for nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And that's what we need to learn, and it's what Sarah needs to learn. I mean, put yourself in her place. Her husband's 99. She's 10 years younger. And imagine, imagine being told, you're going to have a son next year. I mean, think about that. That's not simply unlikely. That's impossible. It's impossible. But I tell you, impossible is not in God's vocabulary. It's in ours. Right? This is why we don't invite so-and-so to church, because we think it's impossible he'll come. Why we don't pray earnestly for so-and-so to be saved is we think it's impossible that they would come to faith. I have a father-in-law, Legger's father, who lives in Oklahoma on the Indian reservation out there. And for many years, he was um, deep in worship of Native American pagan gods. Even, even part of the, the, the dance team that would come do their, their, their pagan worship. And when he got tired of that, he moved off to a, into a motorcycle gang. Right? Leather jacket, tattoos up and down his body. He's looking at 70 in a couple years. And, and, and you know, Allegra and I have talked about him, of course, and we don't, we don't hear much from him. And, and I, I, you know, Leger and I have had this conversation. It's like, hey, baby, God, God got most of us, didn't he? 
As I shared, we weren't raised in a Christian home. I was about 17 before I heard the gospel. Allegra was maybe a year or two younger. And God just began to work in our families. I baptized my dad at 49. My mom came to faith. Right, my brothers, both are seminary graduates. Their wives have come to faith. Allegra's mother is a missionary with Child Evangelism Fellowship. Her brother is a worship pastor in Davis, California. I mean, none of us were seeking after God. And we just rejoice in what God has done in our families. But we look at Aunt Grandpa. And we say, well, he's the one that got away. At least that's in our heart. Not in the heart of my kids. It's my children for, for the most part, I've never met this man. Never had a conversation with him. And yet, week after week, and year after year, in our times of family worship, they're not being, they don't learn this from their father. They're praying, dear God, save this man we've never known whom we call grandpa. And you know what happens? A couple of years ago, Leger's brother gets life-threatening cancer at age 30, or in his 30s. And rather than her father saying, this is just another reason why your God doesn't exist for some reason, he said, he, he, this has brought him to faith in Jesus. I mean, he has said to me, he has testified to me that, Stephen, I have trusted Christ as my Savior. Now, sadly, everything's not rainbows and butterflies. I mean, you accumulate a lot of baggage after 60 years, don't you? And relationships are still fractured. But, but I've, I've heard it, and others heard it, that, Stephen, I now believe in Jesus. And I say, impossible. That's impossible. And God says, no. No. Nothing is impossible with me. I've chosen him, I've claimed him, and I almost hear him whispering in my ear, no thanks to you, pastor, by the way, but, but, but thanks to those little ones running around your house, I reach down from heaven, and in sovereign grace, I have placed faith in his heart. I mean, nothing is impossible. For I wonder, what's, what, what impossibilities do you have? What insurmountable mountains are there in your life? What unbridgeable chasms are there there for you? Impassable rivers. Do you not hear your own heart saying, impossible? And God says, I eat impossible for lunch. That's what I do. In fact, I'm going to give a 90-year-old, barren, postmenopausal woman a child just so I might teach you, Hamilton Baptist Church, that nothing is beyond my ability. In fact, how, how was it that he introduced himself? Remember last time in Genesis 17, he shows up to Abraham and he says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Sarah is old and barren, but God is El Shaddai. Abraham was older and frail, but God was El Shaddai. Canaan was full of pagan nations, but God was El Shaddai. The promises, my Christian friends and brothers and sisters, the promises we have from God are the promises of El Shaddai. The promises of God Almighty. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know the answer. It's no. No. Well, poor poor Sarah. She's struggling to believe. And sadly, that sin of unbelief leads to other sin, as you see in verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Right? 
Her sin of unbelief has taken her to the sin of duplicity. Sarah will have one conversation with God. One. And in that conversation, she lies to him. She laughs at him and then lies to him. You see, sin will lead us to conceal it. And she lies to God in order to hide it. You know what that creates? That creates a Pharisee. That creates a hypocrite. I live one way. I pretend I'm one way because I'm, I'm lying about who I really am and what I've really done. And, and I hope you know how dangerous this is. This path is not a path to walk. And that's why God responds to her. God won't let her stay in her lie. He, won't, he just won't let it go. He, but you notice he's also pretty gentle with her. He doesn't say to her, how dare you lie to me? Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to squash you like a little bug, you tiny little human. Right? Right? What does he say? It doesn't explode. It, I'm, I, it's almost like he's smiling. She says, I didn't laugh. Oh, yes, you did. Right? Oh, you did laugh. Right? He corrects her, but he's gentle with her. In fact, do you see how God encounters people in different ways? Remember how God showed up to Abraham in Genesis 15, right? He came to him when? In the middle of the night. Here, he comes for Sarah in the brightness of the day. Remember how God came to Abraham in Genesis 15? A smoking torch, some type of levitating fire pot that's passing through bloodied and slaughtered pieces of dead animals. He comes to Sarah with dirty feet. He needs to wash up. He, he comes to Abraham, and Abraham is feeling this crushing dread. He says he was terrifying. He shows up with Sarah, and he's there for lunch. And he's, and he's gentle with her. I don't know if you notice this conversation. Sarah says in verse 12, he says, After I am worn out, shall I have this pleasure? After I'm worn out. You know that word worn out, it means useless, worthless. She's saying, you see, you hear the self-hatred? I'm worthless. I'm a useless person. The one job I've been supposed to do, I can't do. I'm use, I'm good for nothing. And then God quotes her. Why did Sarah say? But he misquotes her. He's, he says, why did Sarah say, I'm old? Because God, she said, I'm useless. God won't use that language to describe her. He's not going to go to that level. You're not useless. And, and, in fact, in Genesis 15 and, and Genesis 18, God, I mean, the, the appearances of God couldn't be more different. And, and God still does this. Sometimes God comes slowly and gradually. Sometimes he comes on people over years. And, and sometimes he comes suddenly and strongly, Right? Sometimes he, he, kinda, he works so different on, on other people. Some people come to faith in Christ when they're overcome with their sin. And only later they receive grace. That's how I came. I heard the gospel and it wasn't, wasn't oh, wasn't this wonderful love and forgiveness and grace? No, I, I, I felt like God threw me up against the wall. I don't think he gave me a hug. He took me by the sh shirt collar and shoved me against the wall and put a finger in my face and said to me, how dare you? That's my encounter. How dare you? And it was only later that I learned of his love and his grace. My ch he comes to my children through a different door. They hear of love and grace 
and kindness first, and only later they see their depth of sin. I want you to understand, God, the way God works in your life may not be the way he works in someone else's life. The way he worked in Abraham's life is not the way he's working in Sarah's life. In fact, I love the story when, when Jesus shows up uh, at, at Lazarus' funeral. Remember, he's late to get there. Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary, and they couldn't be more different. You remember that? I think it's Luke chapter 10 that Mary's at Jesus' feet, listening, just soaking it all in. Martha's in the kitchen, you know, slaving away, and then she comes out and she tells God what to do, right? You know, tell her to, get, to help me. Very different people. Well, he's coming to the death, uh, to the burial of their brothers, of their brother, Lazarus. And do you remember Martha hears the Lord is on his way? What does she do? She gets up and runs out to meet him because she's going to give him a lecture, She runs out and says, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, well, your brother will live again. She says, I I know on the great day of the resurrection. And then Jesus looks at her in the face, and what does he do? He says, Martha, don't you understand? I am the resurrection. I am the life, and that whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. You see, in, in Martha's grief... God comes with theology, Bible study, propositional truth. He takes care of her need, and then he moves on. He comes to the graveside, and there's Mary. And what's Mary doing? Mary's weeping, weeping. And what did Jesus say? Mary, don't you understand? I'm the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. No. What does he do? He takes her in his arms and weeps. He just cries with her. You see, God knows what we need. He counsels us according to who we are. Right? And here, he's so gentle, stop laughing at me. Nothing's too hard for me. Trust me. And she will. Because 12 months later, she'll experience the impossible. In fact, friends, I think it does, she doesn't wait till she has birth to believe. I don't think she even waits to conceive to believe. I think she comes to faith. The reason I believe this is Hebrews eleven eleven read for us by Josh this morning. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive. Even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And then we'll find out this woman who now believes in a couple chapters, it was chapter 21, Isaac will be born and she will say, what, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said that Abraham and Sarah would, uh, said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, right? She's laughing again. But this time it's not cynical laughter, it's not bitter laughter, it's not unbelieving laughter. This time it's the laughter of joy. This time it's the laughter of wonder at God's goodness. And she names him Isaac, which is Hebrew for laughter. I mean, isn't this a wonderful story? It's incredible, it's wonderful. In fact, I don't even, if you notice, maybe you didn't notice, of course you didn't notice. I I noticed because I spent so much time here. But you look in verse 14, and that that phrase I told you to memorize, is is anything too hard for the Lord? You see a little footnote next to the word hard? Do you have that there? I do. It, it, it could be translated, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is it, so is anything too hard for the Lord or is anything too wonderful for the Lord? We don't know how to translate it. Perhaps 
It wasn't that she doubted that God could do it, but she doubted that God would do it. And maybe God's saying to her, it's not, nothing's too, not, it's not it's too hard for me. Maybe he's saying, she's thinking, and God could do this, God could do whatever, but she's thinking, it's too wonderful to imagine. It's, as we might say, it's too good to be true. And so God shows up and he says, is anything too wonderful for me? Is anything good, too good to be true for me? And that's not just true for Sarah, that's true for you. It's true for us all who are in Christ. In fact, Sarah would say in Genesis 21, who would have thought that I would nurse a child and yet I am? Is she not putting words in your mouth, Christian? Can we not likewise say, as a Christian, who would have thought that I would be a Christian? And yet I am. And yet I am. Do you have that sense of wonder? You know, you you ask a secular-minded person, a Christian, say, are you a Christian? You know what they say? That's private. That's private. You, you ask a legalistic Christian, you say, are you a Christian? What do they say? Of course I'm a Christian. Why are you asking? What's wrong with you? What are you, what are you getting at? Right? But you ask someone who understands the gospel, and you say, are you a Christian? You know what they respond? Yeah. And isn't it amazing? Who would have thought me? Me, a Christian. And, and yet I am. It's like a joke. In fact, Tim Keller is fond of saying, when you become a Christian, you see your life as a spiritual comedy with you as the star. There's amazement. There's laughter. There's wonder. Because we were just like Sarah, weren't we? She was barren, old, impossible to receive the promise. You and I were dead in our sin, unable to believe, uh, unable and willing to submit, right? And yet we have come to that place where we believe and submit. What's harder, I tell you, to, to, to have a 90-year-old woman have a baby or for you and I, despite the li- lives in which we live, to be adopted into God's family and we shall live forever and ever and ever with him? In fact, Jesus, you know, he'll, he'll quote or at least allude to Genesis 18, 14 to the rich young ruler and he'll turn away and walk away and Jesus will say, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Yeah, and how does a camel go through an eye of a needle? It doesn't. It's, in other words, it's impossible. And the disciples pick up on this and they're stunned by that statement. And they say, then who could be saved? How could anybody be saved? Answer? With men, with Abraham's, with Sarah's, with you, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible with God. Right? Has God saved you from your sin and saved you from yourself? Yes. Why? Because nothing is too hard for God. Because nothing is too wonderful for God. You know how he did it? Well, later on, he'll talk to another woman, a a descendant of Sarah's, who also couldn't have a son, and yet was told in a year, you're going to have a son. This woman says to him, how can this be? For I am a virgin. The angel responds, just as that she was talking to, just as God responded millennia ago to Sarah, 
Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible with God. And through that divine power, Jesus will be born, the ultimate son of promise, the true Isaac comes. And this one offers us love and grace by dying on the cross for our sin and being raised three days later, that those who stop their disbelief, those who yield their life to him, the impossible will happen. You will be saved. You'll be saved. May that fill us with wonder. Have you been saved too long that you've lost the wonder? Can you not say with Sarah, who would have thought that I would be a Christian? And yet I am. You ought to wonder at your salvation. Even as we sing in a moment, did he for me who caused him pain, died he for me who caused him pain, for me, for me, who death pursued amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Father, it is... It is too good to be true, and yet it is, that we are yours and you are ours because your Son has died for us. May that humble us. May that, that, that fill us with delight and amazement. Some of us lost the amazement. We've been doing this so long that we just think, uh, of course I'm a Christian. God, will you help us to understand? Will we have the, the wonder of Genesis 21, Sarah? How can this be? And yet it is. And we're so thankful that you are the God who does the impossible. This is a room filled with hundreds of people that testify that nothing is too hard for you. Will you help us to believe? Even as we have experienced that truth, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.